Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 34, and we have an alumni on the podcast today, Dr. Judson Brewer. Um, in 2020, we talked about his book about um, craving and habits, and today we're kind of following that that sort of strand of thought to a, a similar topic, something you might not always consider a habit, this time anxiety. Um, so the book is titled Unwinding Anxiety. New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. Um, and I'm really excited for Dr. Judd to be back on the podcast. Um, he's an MD, PhD, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and New York Times bestselling author. Um, he studies the neural mechanisms of mindfulness using standard and real-time fMRI and has translated research findings into programs to treat addictions, including two really great apps and at least two really great books that I know of. Did I get most of that right, Dr. Judd? <laughs> yes, perfect. Cool. So this book is really, really awesome. It, in, in the way I've been thinking about it I, as I've been reading it, it seems like it sort of operationalizes mindfulness, um, which I'm a big fan of because, you know, mindfulness is near and dear to my heart. But if we can, like, take the particular a um, aspects of mindfulness and fit them to our sort of modern predicament, um, I think it's really wonderful, especially if those claims are backed up by science. So yeah, thanks a lot for writing it. It was, it was my pleasure. And I, you know, I learned a lot in the process of doing the research for the, you know, the app that we based the book on as well as uh, just habit in general, you know, so it's, it was, it was a, it was a very interesting process in over the last you know decade of kind of pulling all of this together. Totally. I feel like of all the books and stuff I've read about mindfulness, um, you're the person who emphasizes curiosity the most. Do you, do you think you hold that title or, or are there other people that are as um, sort of bullish about it as you are? <laughs> it's a good question. As far as uh, suffering goes, I know comparing ourselves to others causes suffering. So I'll just, I have no idea. I'll just leave it at, um, I'm glad that you're noticing that, that I emphasize curiosity because I think it is a superpower and it's a really critical aspect of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess what I like so much about the book is there's such a big difference between like having your morning sit where you might go off into la la land or get really interested in the breath. And then step off the cushion into the world and just have a very difficult day and the peace and serenity you experienced from like 8 a.m. to 8.30 seems to be nowhere in sight. Whereas, you know, the, the approach that you've taken is is really all about our lives off the cushion. Yes, I, I think the two can be intertwined, but some of my earlier research with smoking cessation, for example, found that, you know, it's the the off the cushion practice is, is really, really important. And in fact, you can even start with that as a way to train people. You know, I started my own mindfulness practice, geez, I guess it was about 25 years ago now where, you know, I learned, you know, sit down on the cushion, pay attention to your breath when your mind wanders, bring it back and, you know, flailed for about 10 years, not really quite understanding why I was paying attention to my breath. You know, I was noticing that I was, you know, certainly calming uh, when I would do that. Yet when I started looking at the, you know, do, having my lab start its own research around habit change, it was it was a game changer in terms of looking at these formal and informal practices. We even did a study with smoking cessation, 
where we ended up getting five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. But in that study, we found that the informal practices formally moderated our smoking cessation effects more than the formal practices. And that got me really curious <laughs> mm. about how, you know, how we can actually use those as the foundational element and then layer in formal practices as compared to the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that being an easier entry point for people who don't want to, you know, spend all that time in the mornings or the evenings. I think I, I've been meditating for about five years now. And I think all up until the last year, I've treated it as sort of two aspects of my life, the thing I do in the morning, and then the thing I do for the rest of my day. Um, and it's, it's just, it just doesn't cut it, you know. Um, mm. So I'm really glad to have books and work like this uh, to help us bring it into our real lives. Great. Um, yeah, so maybe just to couch our understanding of this and like the proper grounding, um, the book talks a lot about statistics, especially some that were collected pre-COVID. What, what would you say is the scope of the anxiety problem, at, at least maybe in the United States? I don't know if you can speak to sort of worldwide statistics. So I would say the non-scientific version is it's huge. <laughs> it's, you know, it's an epidemic. And the scientific, um, you know, answers, if you look at the data, anxiety disorders were already the number one mental health issue. For people in the U.S. and they went up, I think it was 30%, you know, during the pandemic. So a big problem became even bigger. Yeah. Ugh, it's, it's so disheartening. But at the same time, I, I guess I'm glad that we have these tools to help us bring us back to sort of the, you know, pure loving awareness that we know we are somewhere deep inside. Yes. Um, there's a lot that's really amazing in the book and there's, uh, it has a really nice structure too, with like the first gear, second gear, third gear. And there's, there's so much I want to talk about. There's a quote that you have. Um, I think you were interviewing your wife about general anxiety and, and she described it as a, a low grade feeling that has no object in itself. It attaches to any particular situation or thought that it can. It's as though my mind is looking for something to be anxious about. So, you know, as someone with an anxiety disorder, you know, this really speaks to me. Um, for people who don't have general anxiety, I don't know what they make of a quote like this. They're probably like, oh, that that's kind of stinks to have that situation. But um, yeah, it's true that when we have like these really deeply conditioned patterns or parts that are just kind of on vigilance mode all the time, it can really feel like it's um, pretty central to our identity. Yes. And so certainly for folks that have just felt, you know, feel like anxiety is deeply seated in their bones, as one per person put it to me we all experience anxiety to one degree or another. We all know what anxiety is for ourselves. You know, we might not recognize it clearly if it's low grade or, you know, if it's just been this, you know, restless nervousness that we think, oh, maybe I'm stressed or something. So I think we, you know, there's a spectrum and we all, you know, we all get it to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, as a, as you're a neuroscientist, there's a lot of stuff in here about brains, which is awesome because, you know, even though this podcast is mostly about minds, we want to really bridge that gap with the mushy stuff between the ears that contributes to our experience. Um, so there's the description of this uh, seemingly important part of the brain called the PFC or prefrontal cortex. And you describe something that it does that sounds a lot like rumination to me. And it, you write, if information is lacking, our PFC plays out different versions of what might happen to us. Choose the best path forward. Um, is, is that where rumination lives? Is that in the PFC? 
it's, I mean, it's hard to put it, limit things to a single brain region because the brain doesn't really work that way. It's more of a network of a bunch of different regions that are all, you know, hooked up. So the prefrontal cortex certainly has been implicated in rumination. So have networks such as the default mode network. I think that's probably been implicated the most, both with rumination, you know, when we w regret things that we've done in the past, but also the anxious worry where we're worrying about things in the future. Mm -hmm. and, and just to be clear on the tool being used here, um, to, to know that there are things in our brains associated with these kind of phenomena that we can describe about our, our thought patterns, the tool there is some kind of scanner that's like measuring uh, oxygen or, or blood in your head, these uh, imaging techniques. Is that correct? We've largely used uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which you know officially uses what's called a bold signal, blood oxygen level dependent signal, which basically is a surrogate marker of neuronal activation. And you know that surrogate marker is through changing in you know oxygen status in the in the hemoglobin. Okay, and neuronal activation—that's like the way that thoughts or you know thinking happens. Well, yes. Think of it as a brain, you know, neurons firing. So the firing, you know, the, the whole thing around consciousness and thinking has not been completely worked out yet, but it seems to be, it, it, the brain is one place where people <laughs> have, have associated thoughts <laughs> and memories and things like that. Quite, quite a gentle understatement there, but maybe that is the, the real truth. So there's there's so much good stuff in the book. On page 17, you talk about how the difference between fear and anxiety. And I feel like I've pressed people in the past on the podcast to like give me situations in which anxiety is adaptive or useful. Um, it seems like in the book, you make the distinction that like fear and maybe worry can be useful, but anxiety really, whenever it presents, is sort of maladaptive. And not that we ne necessarily need to be too black and white on any of this, but is, does that sort of align with um, your thinking? Well, I'm happy to be black and white on certain areas where there are clear data. So fear is helpful. You know, we learn from fear. We, you know, the fight, flight, freeze instinct. So that that happens generally at a pre-conscious level. But that feeds back and helps us learn things. You know, for, for example, if you step out into a busy street, you know, let's say we're, we're distracted by our phone or weapon of mass distraction, as Cornel West puts it. Hmm. And we forget to look both ways before crossing the street. We almost get hit by a car. We have that flight reaction. Oh, no. And then afterwards, when our conscious mind can come back online, you know, after we jump back onto the safety of the sidewalk, our brain says, hey, you know, put your phone away when you cross the street. And so we learn through that negative reinforcement that, you know, we should look both ways before cross it, crossing the street. Or we maybe we relearn that because we, at the, in theory, most of us learned that as a kid, but we, a lot of us seem to have forgotten that in this, in the uh, cell phone age. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that's where all learning happens. Uh, three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So if you think of fear, you know, like the trigger is you almost get hit. The uh, the behavior is you jump back and you learn, hey, you know, look both ways uh, before crossing a street and then looking both ways in the future helped us avoid that, you know, that unpleasant feeling of fear in the future. 
So that's pretty, you know, lots of examples of, of fear as a survival mechanism. Also, our, you've mentioned the prefrontal cortex. Our brain helps us survive in a different way through uh, projecting of the future. So planning has also been shown to be helpful for survival. So, you know, if I have to go on a trip, it's helpful for me to, you know, book the plane tickets or the train tickets or the hotel or whatever, because I can't just, you know, show up at the airport or the train station and not know when the train or the plane is going to take off and expect to get to my destination in a trouble-free manner. So planning also helpful, but interestingly, when you mush those two together, you know, fear plus the, you know, future, so to speak, that's when we get anxiety. And so, you know, and, and the thing that drives that is uncertainty. Uh, our brains really don't like uncertainty. So uncertainty is like, well, think of it this way. When our stomach is empty, it rumbles and we it urges us to go get some food. When our brain is empty in the sense that we don't have information, it rumbles in the same way where it gives us this urge to go do something. And that urge is to go get that information. So that can be helpful in terms of that urge that says go do something. But when we can't get information, that can spiral out into all these what if scenarios. You know, what if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And that has actually been shown to make it harder to think and plan. So it, you know, it, we kind of trip ourselves up with with this anti-survival quote unquote strategy, where you know, planning for the future is helpful, but worrying about the future is not so helpful. Now, and I write about this in the book, there's a lot out there on the internet about how there's this inverted U-shaped curve around how, you know, we need some level of anxiety to mm -hmm. perform well, but that is a myth that goes back to the, you know, 1908, over a hundred years ago with the study of Japanese dancing mice, where they looked at arousal they didn't look at anxiety. They looked at arousal and that has somehow gotten, you know, morphed into some level of anxiety being helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really, I think we should all, uh, you know, echo some appreciation here for you digging through the annals of bad or misattributed science to avail us of these myths. The, the last guest I had on the episode was uh, a psychologist working on grief and she had to unpack something famous about the the three stages of grief or five or nine that turned out to be sort of unscientific so yeah it's good to not take this stuff for granted yes well you know the hallmark of science is being open and curious to to change and not just assuming that something is true it's also helpful if it plays out in our in our daily lives so for example you know, if we were to do an experiment with ourselves and we just look back on times, we could do a retrospective study where we look back at on times when we were anxious and we looked back on times when we weren't anxious, we can pretty easily see which, which of those scenarios is more fruitful for making good decisions. You know, I don't make good decisions when I'm anxious. I don't know anybody that does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I think you wrote in the book that like it could have been the case that we had a brain that when worrying about the future, if there's not enough information, it kind of just goes into like sleep mode. But that's just kind of not the case. Yeah, we go into uh, worry mode, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Hmm. I guess the intelligent designer sort of messed up a little bit there. But anyways, yeah, so something that you said was sort of interesting. So with the learning model, you know, the reason that you avoid getting hit by a car in the future is not so much because cars are dangerous, but because it felt bad to feel the fear of almost getting hit. And so we just don't want to feel that feeling again. Is that, am I restating sort of what you said? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. So negative reinforcement functions through the avoidance of something unpleasant, right? So if if we can avoid a fear reaction by looking both ways before crossing the street. So the behavior is looking both ways and that avoids that, you know, that almost getting hit by a car feeling, which isn't very pleasant. And so they call it negative reinforcement because it, it avoids something negative, if that makes sense. Yeah. I can almost imagine a sort of New Yorker cartoon, <laughs> like a mother asking a child why he looks both ways to cross the street. And he says, well, <laughs> I don't want to feel fear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So, okay. So it's clearly the case that those of us who experience anxiety don't like it. And I'm probably jumping to a head in the book, but it's sort of deeply ironic that if if we go through our bouts of anxiety without like, quote unquote, paying attention or becoming curious in the way that you describe in the book, you know, even though we don't like it, it it, it becomes a pattern, right? Like the the way that we dig our heels in by like avoiding or distracting during periods of anxiety, um, you know, just sort of make it more, I, I guess, make it more likely to come around again. You know, even though like in the case of being almost hit by a car, like that signal results in the in the behavior that's sort of most adaptive. But in so many other cases, it doesn't. Um, is that fair? Well, let's and let's unpack this a little bit because this is really important. And it's not something that I ever learned in medical school. So fear is helpful, but it's critical to note that fear reactions happen in the present moment. So when there's danger, we need to avoid danger now. In the future, we can try to plan to avoid danger, but we don't, you know, we don't know that we're actually going to be in danger in the future. So anxiety can actually be driven as a habit. And this is why I wrote the whole Unwinding Anxiety book, because it, it never occurred to me that anxiety could be a habit. And in fact, I didn't even think about this. You know, I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medications for anxiety. So, uh, you know, we had developed this program. We had developed an app actually for eating. It's called Eat Right Now. And we'd been studying it and how it could help people unwind these eating habit loops, you know, stress eating, emotional eating, overeating, things like that. And as we were studying it, uh, we were having people map out their habit loops around eating. And somebody said to me, hey, you know, I mapped out my habit loops. And the main one is anxiety. So anxiety, because it's unpleasant, triggers me to eat. And that eating gives me that distraction from the anxiety. And she said, you know, that's helpful to know that. But can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, eh, I prescribe medications. But it put a bug in my ear for two reasons. One is the the number of people you have to treat for a medication to help one person is five. So basically, I play the medication lottery every time people come into my clinic. I don't know 
you know, for the next five patients I prescribe a medication to, which one of them is going to show a significant reduction in symptoms. And I also don't know what to do with the other four. So I had my own anxiety in my clinic in terms of how could I help my patients the most. And I also, you know, was wondering, you know, well, let me go and see if there's something in the literature about anxiety, you know, the behavioral aspects and the mental aspects that are not medication related. It turns out back in the 1980s, a guy, Thomas Borkovec and others had proposed that anxiety could be driven through negative reinforcement. And it never occurred to me that that could be the case, but he laid it out pretty simply. So anxiety, the feeling of anxiety is the trigger, the mental behavior. And I'm saying that, it, I'm going to say that again, because I never, you know, we tend to think of behaviors as like eating or smoking or whatever, mm -hmm. but we can also do mental behaviors like thinking or overthinking or worrying. So anxiety can trigger the mental behavior of worrying and worrying, you might think worrying doesn't feel very good, yet in fact, it can make us feel like we're in control or at least you know, make it feel like it feels better to do something than to do nothing. And so if we worry <laughs> you know, about something, then it feels like we're doing something. And that feeds back and drives that negative reinforcement process that says to our brain, hey, next time you're anxious, worry. And so this is how worry gets set up. Worry is really deeply baked into even the assessments of anxiety. So, you know, when I read that, this, this aha moment, you know, I had this light bulb moment in my brain that I was like, oh, anxiety is a habit. And then I was like, oh. I know how to work with habits. <laughs> so we developed this unwinding anxiety app and started testing it. And, you know, long story short, we've done a bunch of studies with it now. We did a study with anxious physicians and got a 57% reduction in validated anxiety scores. We did a study with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction in these clinically validated scores. The GAD7 was the score that we used. And in that study, we could actually calculate uh, that number. You know, it's called the number needed to treat. So with medication, that number needed to treat is 5.2, meaning one in five people benefit from the program, you know, from the medications. In this study, the number needed to treat was 1.6. So obviously the smaller number is better because it doesn't take, you know, you, more people benefit. So we were blown away by that, uh, that it worked that well. But we've now done, you know, three clinical studies. We've published all of them. And it seems that the the findings hold pretty well. Yeah, I remember seeing that graph in the book um, and that that conclusion that's pretty amazing. So it just, just to linger a little bit on this idea of anxiety as a habit, um, a habit that's sort of propped up by the worrying, which momentarily, um, you've said, you know, does something good, it, you know, maybe it, it keeps us in some, in some way, it shields us perhaps from the pain of anxiety, or, or as you said, makes it feel like we we're doing something or we're in control. I guess there's a number of things that are like kind of counterintuitive about thinking about anxiety as a habit versus something like eating, because, uh, you know, things like eating and smoking and, um, you know, other sort of classical habits feel very voluntary. And, and, and sure, there's, there's probably most people, especially people who haven't, um, you know, spent that much time in the world of mindfulness, probably also, you know, claim the origin of, of a lot of their thoughts. But, but in this case, we're talking about like mental processes being habits, but where the, the actor there 
yeah, so here, I think you you know where I'm getting. So who is perpetuating the habit? And I'm, I'm not trying to get too deep into like the Buddhist uh, wormholes of like self or non-self, but it's our mind's habit, right? Not ours. Or, or is that is that not a useful line of questioning? And it came up in, in my reading. Uh, you know, I, I think the short answer would be it's, it's our mind's habit, but I'm not sure how we would really separate our mind from ourselves. Uh, you know, I find it helpful just to pragmatically to say, oh, that's a, that's a habit that if I can become aware of it, I can work with it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the only reason I mention it is probably because, um, I'm trying to, I, I guess I have, I've got a critic, right? And I'm trying not to give him any food. So anytime I can take a teaching or um, some instruction and make it not sort of a stick, you know, another stick to whack myself with instead of it being me who's perpetuating the habit, it's it's my mind that, I don't know, that makes it a little bit easier for me just personally, I think, to think about. Yes. And I agree with that. I think of it's, it's, you know, our minds, we, we learn all of these habits through all these conditions that happen. And so we can get in the habit of beating ourselves up. You know, I am a bad person because of this versus we can just say, well, you know, I learned this, you know, through all these conditions that came together. It's, it's not my fault. And so that gives, it helps us not devote energy and time to beating ourselves up and we can repurpose that energy to actually changing the habit. Totally. Totally. So, so practically speaking, I think what we're talking about with the mapping out of behaviors, that's the first gear. Is that right? Yes. Okay, cool. And then the second gear is this, um, uh, I don't know, it's, it's not, it's a trick or, or a hack as I think you describe in the book, but it's asking ourselves by paying attention, like, what am I getting from this? So, you know, I guess in the case of overeating, that might be while you're, you know, in the bag of chips, asking yourself if it feels good or what you're getting from this. But I guess while you're worrying, that's when you would ask the, the second gear question. Is that right? Yes. And the critical neuroscience aspect of this is that, you know, we don't actually change habits based on willpower. So for anybody that feels like they don't have enough willpower and all the messaging out there says, you know, the program's right and you just don't have enough willpower, you need to sign up for another year, whether it's dieting or, you know, whatever else. That's not true. That's not how our brains work. So, you know, here's another opportunity to give ourselves a break. The way that the only way that we change habits is through awareness. And that works because our brains set up a certain reward value for a behavior. So it's easy to pick what behavior to do in the future. So for example, if I have a certain reward value of chocolate cake, let's say my brain says, okay, I know how good chocolate cake is, but I have to learn, you know, different instances is the chocolate cake at this bakery better than this other bakery. So I can learn which bakery to go to. So if I go into a bakery and it's like the best chocolate cake I've ever had. My brain gets what's called the positive prediction error, meaning it was better than expected. And I learn, oh, good bakery, go back here. If I go to another bakery or, you know, yeah, if I go to another bakery and I eat the cake and it's like, eh, not that great. I get what's called the negative prediction error. And my brain says, don't bother with this bakery. Now, then it, my brain sets up what's called a reward hierarchy so that when 
have a hankering for chocolate cake in the future, my brain says, go, go to the one that's good, you know, go to what's good. So that reward hierarchy gets set up as a habit. And then, you know, somebody says, Hey, let's go get some chocolate cake. I automatically think, okay, this is, you know, go to the good bakery. So that all is critically dependent on awareness. If we don't pay attention when we're eating cake at a bakery, we won't lay down a memory of how good or not good that behavior is. So knowing that principle, notice how none of that has to do with willpower. I really want this bakery to have good cake. You know, that's just not how it works. And it's also not how our brains work. So what we can do is have people pay attention as they do a behavior. For example, my patients that want to quit smoking, you know, they've all come in, they've always, they've all tried willpower to quit. If they, if it had worked, they wouldn't need to come to see me. So instead, well, I take a neuroscience approach and I say, okay, go ahead and smoke. They look at me like I'm crazy because their doc just told them to smoke. But I say, pay attention as you smoke. And they come back and, and they're incredulous. They say, how did I not notice this before? Cigarettes taste like crap. You know, I, one of my favorite quotes that somebody said to me was, Today, all the cigarettes I had smoked were disgusting, right? So we get this negative prediction error simply through paying attention to a behavior that we've been doing habitually. For smoking, often it's 30, 40 years that somebody's been doing that and haven't been paying attention. We even did a study with eating with our Eat Right Now app where we had people pay attention as they overate, and it only took 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention for that reward value to drop. Are you ready for this? Below mm -hmm. zero. Below zero. So they shift their behavior. Now we can apply that same principle to worrying where people, you know, people pay attention when they overeat, they see it doesn't feel very good. They stop overeating. People pay attention to when they smoke, they realize that cigarettes taste like crap. They stop smoking. Somebody pays attention to worrying. It happens pretty quickly. They realize that worrying just doesn't do it for them. And so they can start to become disenchanted with the worry itself and they can start to break that habit loop. That's that whole second gear process. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. So, okay, so with the cigarettes, if so, cigarettes, right? They're correlated or cause cancer. They're bad for you. If if it happened to be the case that, like, the actual smoking of the cigarettes, and I, I really haven't smoked many cigarettes. If it happened to be the case that the actual act was really pleasant, even up until like the twentieth or the fiftieth cigarette. Um, it would be hard to break that habit, right? Because it both has long-term bad effects and short-term feels really good. So it, it's dependent upon it being gross, right? Is that fair? Yes. And this is why vaping is so much harder to quit because they've reduced that negative, that barrier. They've reduced the negative reinforcement. You know, when, when these vaping companies make it bubblegum flavor and, you know, whatever, cotton candy and all this stuff. You know, we saw all these teenagers get hooked on these things. Surprise, something tastes good and it's cool. You know, here's something that's supposed to, you know, like vaping. Oh, I'm a, you know, cool at school type of thing. So you get the cool at school type of thing and you also get the bubblegum flavor, you know, and that's a, boy, a literally a toxic combination. Yeah. Okay. So then if we apply, so for worrying, I guess, yeah, so when people come to you as a psychiatrist, do they come in and they say, I want to get rid of my anxiety or they, they want to stop their worry loop? I, I guess both of them are um, potentially things you wouldn't want to do. It's interesting how they're connected in this way. Yes, well, most people don't come in and say, I want to stop worrying because they think that worrying is helpful for them. 
they want to stop their anxiety. And so I map out their anxiety worry habit loops as a place to start. And then they start to become disenchanted with the worrying. And that's how they can start to break the cycle. Right. And they become disenchanted with the worrying because sitting, you know, on your couch, staring into space while your mind like jumps through loops of future what ifs just has like the the felt sense. It's just it's just unpleasant. Is is that right? It is. And you're actually highlighting a key aspect here. So often people get stuck in their heads where they think that they shouldn't worry. And that's not actually what changes behavior. It's really the feeling body that's strong and the thinking mind is weak compared to the feeling body. So the thinking, the thinking mind or the thinking brain is not the not where the money is. It's really the feeling body. So when somebody's worrying, I have them really pay attention to what worrying feels like in their direct experience. Okay. And so um, this is where the BBO comes in, right? The bigger, better offer. Because theoretically, get it, and maybe this is the third year, getting curious about your anxious habit patterns or your worry ha- habit patterns is going to have a higher payoff than the, the rumination or perseverating. Is that right? Yes. So this is that, that, that last gear in the book. And it all goes back to this whole reward hierarchy thing. You know, if we become disenchanted with worrying, our brain's going to say, okay, give me something better. And so we can explore, well, what's better than worrying? Well, not worrying also feels better than worrying, Mm -hmm. but we can also give it something that is uh, helpful right in the moment when we're feeling anxious. Because anxiety feels unpleasant, our mind's going to say, hey, this is unpleasant, make it go away. So we can here we can bring in that superpower of curiosity and we can explore right in that moment what does it feel like when i feel anxiety and i worry about it which tends to feedback and drive more anxiety versus when i feel anxiety and i get curious about it the way i think of it is you know we feel anxiety and we think oh no i'm anxious why am i anxious and we start worrying about how long it's going to last what caused it all these other things that just feed back and drive more anxiety. So we can feel into that experience and see what we're getting from that, which isn't much. We've become disenchanted. Then we can compare that to being curious. Instead of, oh no, I'm anxious, we can go, oh, well, here's anxiety. What does it feel like in my body right now? And we can get really curious. Where do I feel it? Is it stronger in certain places? Is it weaker? What does it actually feel like? Is it the restlessness? Is it tightness? Is it heat? you know, all these things. And as we get curious, we can start to tap into the power of curiosity. It does two things. One is it feels more pleasant than worrying. So it's already that bigger, better offer. But the other thing that it does that's really critical is it helps us see that anxiety really, you know, isn't that bad. So anxiety is about fear of the future. When we feel anxious, we start worrying, oh no, I'm going to be anxious forever. And we, our mind spins out into the future. So we, we can help kind of step back from that and just feel it moment to moment to moment. And we can see that these sensations come and go. They change over time. They're not as permanent as our brain makes them out to be. Yeah, you hear that a lot, like, you know, in, in the mindfulness literature about things constantly changing. I, I think for some, and I think that's true, but I think for some maybe obsessive patterns, they seem to come back so often and maybe that's because we're not paying close enough attention to 
sort of transform them. But they seem to come back so frequently and so often that, I don't know, they, they feel less like things that are constantly, you know, sort of floating by in a stream and more like something attached to um, a boomerang, you know, that, that keeps returning. Right. So a cycle of something where it's spinning is different than a thought that's lasting forever. You know, you we can all look at our thoughts and see how long they last. They don't actually last that long. They're constantly changing. So we can see that we can start to map out the cycle and see that, oh, I'm getting stuck in this cycle of anxiety, feeding, worrying, which feeds back to more anxiety, et cetera. And there we can see, oh, I'm actually feeding this cycle. No wonder it's sticking around, <laughs> which is very different than something being permanent. Right. Okay. Okay. I just want, I want to press you a little bit on this. So yeah, in please. this, in this cycle, anxiety occurs, worrying, which is a habit. It got there. Who knows how it got there? You got it, you know, cause it seemed like a cool thing to do that contributes to more anxiety so that's ironic, right? Because the worrying is supposed to take you away from anxiety by doing something that blunts the feeling of that pain, that mental pain of anxiety. But I guess it just doesn't do a very good job of it. Is that why it, it contributes to more anxiety? Yes. And if you think about worrying, you know, it, it's about uncertainty. And when we can't make things certain, it's just going to feed back and make us more anxious. Right. So it's a terrible offer as far as like the bigger, better <laughs> offer goes. Like it's 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 really um, sort of not worth much, the worrying. Yes, it's not. People start to realize that pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, another question I had um, is, yeah, so curiosity seems really powerful here for, especially if you are are kind of good at noticing things in your body. And I, and I, yeah, I guess I'll ask you this. It, this is the kind of thing that you maybe comes easier to some people than others, like noticing things in their body. Uh, you know, a lot of people walk around living sort of cerebrally. So like noticing these sensations, is there some pre-work that sort of needs to be done? And if you're really not familiar at all with like what your body feels like at, at any given moment? It certainly can be very helpful to pay attention or learn to pay more attention to our bodies. If somebody has been anxious for a long time, they might have learned to avoid being in their body because it's unpleasant through negative reinforcement. So they're kind of living in their heads a lot, you know, the living a disembodied experience. So here it can be helpful to relearn what our body sensations feel like. One of the most common practices for that is the body scan where people start scanning through their body and it helps them become more familiar or re-familiarizes them with what their body sensations feel like. Yeah. So curiosity seems like one option. Where does, um, where does compassion potentially fit in here um, as potentially another sort of bigger, better offer? Is, is that a substitute for, for curiosity? Is it a product of curiosity? Well, I would say this, and maybe we can talk about kindness and then we'll talk about compassion because I think of compassion arising in the face of suffering. So if we look at what often happens when somebody is anxious and they worry a lot, they'll judge themselves like, oh, I'm an anxious person. I'm a bad person. Why can't I deal with this? All that. And they get in the habit loop of self-judgment, which in itself doesn't feel very good, but they're in the habit of doing it. So they don't pay attention. If we can notice how self-judgment doesn't feel very good, we can start to become disenchanted with it. And then we can find that bigger, better offer of self-kindness. So we're just kind to ourselves. 
And here, self-compassion can come in as well, where if we're just noticing, oh, I'm suffering, you know, and not add a story on to that, like why or who I am or anything, but just noticing that we're suffering in the face of suffering, you know, compassion can naturally arise, especially if we're not adding a story to it, you know, because if you think of somebody, you know, we walk, walk across down the street, for example, and we see somebody trip and fall, right? In that moment, we see them suffering and we're not, you know, we, often compassion arises right then. Oh, they, you know, they fell. And often there's a, there's a response that arises where we want to help. So I think of compassion as this, this urge to help that comes spontaneously in the face of suffering, especially if we aren't getting stuck in that story of suffering or we aren't you know feeling like we need to protect ourselves from that suffering so in in the pure in the pure uh, realm where we you know we're there's not a story around it compassion arises and so and that's you know that's part of the probably part of the larger realm of kindness itself does that make sense yeah yeah totally substitution right in this case we're talking about substituting something for something else worrying for curiosity i picked up a substitution anti-anxiety habit in the last year i'm sort of not doing it as much anymore but i was addicted to chess.com anytime i would feel upset i would play like 10 games of chess and the justification for me for myself was like okay i'm not eating right like i'm not just doom scrolling through like the new york times or instagram or something I'm like doing chess, which, you know, society thinks is like a hard game or something like that. And uh, I'm not being present, but it's I guess the offer value for me was higher than some more sort of destructive habits I might have given my um, anxious tendencies. Mm -hmm. So certainly substitution strategies can be better than the, you know, the old habits. So when somebody's trying to quit smoking, they might substitute eating carrot sticks or candy instead of smoking and you know carrot sticks don't have the 5000 carcinogens that cigarettes have so certainly better yet those substitution strategies don't actually help us step out of the habit loop themselves so here if we can actually identify the root cause it it helps us step out of the habit loop itself so for example if we're worried and we're, or if we're feeling anxious and we're getting stuck in a worry habit loop, we could play chess as a way to distract ourselves from the anxiety. But we can't always play chess and we can't play chess forever, every moment that we're anxious. And our brain's kind of, you know, I don't know about you, but um, you know, when you said 10 games of chess, my brain was like, wow, that's a lot of chess. <laughs> you know, It would be tough to like just constantly play chess. Maybe if it's better than anxiety, it's, it's more motivating to do it. So here... I would say some offers are better than others. And here's where if we can find intrinsically rewarding behaviors, those are going to give us, uh, think of it as the biggest, bestest offer as compared to, you know, if I'm anxious, I play chess to distract myself for a little bit, but I don't really learn how my mind works and I don't learn how to work with my mind. If I get curious, I can map out these habit loops. I can explore how unrewarding worry is And I can even explore what it feels like to be curious in the moment of anxiety itself. And I can learn to relate to my experience differently in those. And what that helps me do is learn to be with and work with this anxiety at any moment, 
you know, if I'm driving, I can't just pull over and play a game of chess, <laughs> but I can be curious. Oh, where do I feel this? You know, in, in my body, those are very different. Yeah. I guess that one's much more portable. <laughs> yes. And it's always available. Yeah. But I guess the door's open, right? If someone comes, you know, to your lab, um, do you live in Rhode Island near Brown or are you somewhere else? I live in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So if someone comes to your door and they're like, hey, I found a bigger, better offer that's not mindfulness or paying attention, you would you entertain it? Absolutely. I'd be very curious to, to see what it is. Cool. So maybe I'll just ask you one or two more questions because we've been talking for a while. One part of the book that I really, really enjoyed was when you were talking about um, some of the work. I think you mentioned someone named Carol Dweck. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in this sort of growth mentality versus this sort of self-flagellation mentality. And there's there's also like a really pithy quote about um, something about the future, uh, like stopping worrying is like, uh, I don't know, I, I'd have to find the quote. But um, I found that stuff also on the long lines of not sort of feeding the critic, really empowering stuff about how, um, like you had an example of someone who I think she she was either an eater or a cigarette smoker, but she was still sort of flagellating herself for not being um, completely free of her addictions. But by realizing that she'd learned so much, she was able to sort of reframe her experience as not a failure because of the learning that took place. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when we are in a mindset, a fixed mindset, think of it as we're locked into a habit loop, like this is the way things are. And one of those fixed mindsets can be the self-flagellation where we're constantly judging ourselves. Like I can't change. I, you know, I, whatever. And we can't learn in those moments because we're closed down to learning. We're, we're stuck, you know, in our, in our talk track, so to speak, our self story talk track. So here, if we can learn to open up to the experience, we can put ourselves in growth mindset as Dweck puts it, you know, where we're open to learning and Lo and behold, one of the best ways to get into growth mindset is to be curious. Yeah. So the self-flagellation, what is it good for? Nothing. <laughs> Oy, the world, the world, the, the patterns that we have is incredible. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I was kind of curious about how exactly to practice Hmm, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but then I'll just sort of leave it to you if you want to mention. I mean, there's lots of great stuff in the book, a lot that we haven't covered. And we haven't really talked that much about the apps either. So um, maybe you want to talk a little bit about hmm, and anything else you think that I haven't asked you about this this hour that would be good for our, our listeners to know about. Sure. The, the hmm, I think of it as a mantra where it's a way to awaken curiosity in a non-cognitive way. So, you know, if we, you know, and the, this is where I mentioned earlier that, you know, oh no, I'm anxious versus, oh, I'm anxious. That inflection can shift us from kind of a fix to a growth mindset. Oh no, to, oh, what's going on here? And the hmm mantra is also another good way to do it where it functions in the same way as the, oh, where, where we, you know, if we're anxious, we can go, hmm, what does this feel like? And that hmm kind of opens us up and and brings some a little bit of lightness and levity so that we can actually be open to our experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm imagining one of those um, buttons you used to be able to get from Office Depot. I, don't, I forget what it said, but it, it was something kind of um, 
cheeky like that, imagining having that on every anxious person's desk just to hear that sort of uh, playful noise. Perfect. I love it. What haven't I asked you, Dr. Judd? What would be useful to people who are interested in figuring out the problems of their anxiety or um, sort of making headway on any other habits um, that they have? You know, the one thing I would say is that this process, this three-step process, or these three gears, as I talk about in the book, can be applied to any habit. So that's the one thing I would say is, you know, we can we can explore anxiety as this unusual habit or unusual because we don't think of it as a habit, but it's pretty usual in the sense of how often people experience it. We can also look to see how that plays out, this process plays out in all other aspects of our lives, you know? So how many unhelpful habits can we map out how many of them can we ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? And how many of them can we get curious and use that curiosity as a way to step out of these habit loops? Totally. Yeah. Well, so much uh, gratitude over here for for doing this kind of research. I think this stuff is really making these sort of ancient practices come to life for the lay people amongst us. So yeah, thanks for a lot f- for writing the book and coming on the podcast and and continuing to do this work. My pleasure.